All right, happy Easter and welcome to Pizza Theology. This is now talking to me. Okay, technical difficulties already. Um, yeah, so uh, it is Easter Sunday. He is risen and we are celebrating that. Uh, I know that the today's topic in our heaven, hell, and everything in between uh, is a little bit heavy, but it very much does connect back to the message of Easter, that Jesus has defeated death, uh, that he's defeated sin, and that is good news for us. So uh, a few things, just business things, because we're going to have to move pretty quickly. Uh, get your packet. If you don't have that, you can get the, the packet at anyfocus.org slash pizza packet and um, download, print, fill it out online, however you want to do that. Uh, I am going to go pretty fast today. We have a lot of ground to cover. So uh, my slides are online, though, so you can get those. You can follow along, look back at things that you miss, uh, certainly go back to it later. Um, I do want to mention also that uh, we, to, to be able to do all of this, we've had to buy quite a bit of stuff, uh, new tech stuff uh, that I don't understand. So if you want, Pizza Theology is free uh, for the first time ever, but if you want to make a donation of, you know, one or two or a few dollars, uh, that could be really helpful because we did end up spending a few hundred uh, dollars to be able to, to make all of this possible. So you can do that through Twitch. Um, there's a giving link or you can go to our website. Uh, I want to do a quick poll. So they're going to throw that up um, and you can, can text in your answer and, and we will look at that here in just a little while. Uh, the just to kind of see where we're at in our thinking about hell and what we think that means. I know I can't capture what everyone thinks, but I tried to kind of capture some major viewpoints. Uh, so go ahead and take just a second for that. And then as we're going through this material today, I would just encourage you, uh, remember we have a Q&A at the end. So uh, Peter and Garrett are planning to join me for that and we'll reflect on your questions. So you can put those in the Twitch chat and just put, you know, question, colon, and then what that is. And then that way we can recognize those and, and try to organize them in some way and hopefully address as many of them as we can. So with all of that said, hopefully you've got had time to, to get, get that number for the, the poll. I am going to dive into our topic for tonight. But I don't want to start with hell. I want to start with the seriousness of wickedness. And so as we, as we take on this tough topic, I will uh, lead us in prayer, and then we'll dive right in. God, I want to pray that you open our hearts to your word tonight, uh, that we would be able to think uh, theologically, think coherently, uh, that we would think about all these things in light of who you've revealed yourself to be, uh, and that you would give us wisdom and discernment, uh, and that we could be uh, and, and just grace for us uh, as we struggle through trying to, to understand what you've told us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as with all pizza theologies, uh, again, our goal, I said this last week, our goal is not so much to tell you what to think as it is to get you to think. And so hopefully I will will do that. Uh, I did have one of the staff guys tell me that when I did this talk five years ago, uh, that he and his friend went and sat uh, at Whataburger after and just talked about how much they disagreed with me. And I was like, that is great. Uh, if you are talking about pizza theology after it's over, I've succeeded in my message. So uh, we'll see where we go. So the seriousness of wickedness, 
Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And this idea that God's wrath is being revealed against wickedness is something that we find really from from start to finish in Scripture. Uh, And I think it's something we have to struggle with because sometimes we, you know, the the church has had periods where we've thought about God as being very wrathful uh, for a lot of time. We've also had times where we, like, did not really think about God being wrathful at all or being angry about anything. He's just kind of a sweet old God up there in the sky and doesn't really care uh, what we do. But, but God's wrath in Scripture, I think, is his, is his settled antipathy or enmity towards all that's evil, towards all that's wrong in the cosmos. And so the first thing that I want to say is that as we see God's wrath, it seems that sin is in some sense a big deal. Sin is a big deal. That in the Bible, sin is a problem that doesn't have an easy solution. In the scripture, sin has to be atoned for. Uh, the, the idea is that sin damages the cosmos in some way. It damages, uh, you guys are getting ahead of me on my notes, um, uh, that sin damages the cosmos in some way, that it, it does something that has to be repaired. And we like to kind of sentimentalize forgiveness a lot. We like to think that forgiveness is something that doesn't really cost something. But I want you to, you know, picture an image of like a couple fighting in their apartment. And this is a throwdown fight. They are throwing things at each other. Uh, They're wrecking the apartment. They may end up, you know, coming to some agreement and, you know, having a sweet makeup moment at the end of that. Uh, but the apartment is still destroyed. Stuff is still broken. See, we can forgive, but that, that, that still leaves damage that has to be repaired. And that's where I think we sometimes get, get this wrong, that we like to focus on the sentimental, emotional side of forgiveness and forget that there's damage done. Uh, or you might use an image that the scripture also uses in a number of places of a debt to be forgiven. You know, so that, yes, someone, maybe if if Rhett owes me money and I forgive that debt, someone is still out the money. The money has not been paid back. And so forgiveness, I I would say that setting things right biblically takes both this emotional side of forgiveness and the atonement side. Something has to be repaired. So either Jesus pays my debt or I pay my own debt. Either Jesus atones for my sin or I atone for my own sin. Because atonement means to make amends, to repair a wrong, to make reparations for an injury. And scripturally, atonement seems to come through death and sometimes suffering. The message is that I've made a mess of things and someone has to clean it up. So let's talk about hell a little bit. The idea of hell is the ultimate expression of God taking evil seriously, that God takes evil seriously. But, but underlying that is the message that God takes us seriously, that God takes our choices seriously, that what we do matters in some sense. This isn't just a pre-scripted story that's playing out. We have choices to make. Now, when we talk about hell in the Bible, we have a language problem because a lot of different 
words in, in the scripture get translated into hell in English. And it's not clear, one, that they mean the same thing as each other, and two, that they mean exactly what we tend to mean when we talk about hell. So I want to go over a few of those just to kind of lay some groundwork. So in the Old Testament, there's only one word uh, that, that ever gets translated hell, depending on the, the translation, and that's the, the Hebrew word sheol, and it means the grave or the earth. And the picture in the Old Testament of Sheol seems to be a place where nothing happens. Uh, just nothing much goes on there. The good and the bad both go there, people who love God and people who don't. That's a part of uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes' reflection. He's like, why be good when you both end up in the same place? So it's not a positive place, but it's not an especially negative place either. That's the Hebrew idea. By the time the New Testament comes around, uh, we have the Greek word Hades. And this is the Greek word that Sheol gets translated into when they made a Greek copy of the Old Testament. But it's a much more developed idea. Hades is a much more developed idea in Greek culture than Sheol was in the Hebrew culture. It's split into two parts, uh, Elysium, which is where the, the good people went, and Tartarus, where bad people went. But I don't think it's clear that the New Testament buys that definition completely. Uh, so the Apostles' Creed actually uses the language uh, that Jesus descended to Hades. That's what it says in the Greek. But depending on your version of the Apostles' Creed that you're, you're familiar with, it might say that he descended to hell, that he descended to Hades, or that he descended to the dead. We have different uh, English translations. So what exactly did they mean when they wrote that? We can touch on that later. Uh, Tartarus, that bad part of Hades, um, in Greek thought, again, the part of Hades reserved for bad people, that phrase does get, or that word does get used once in the Bible. It gets used in the New Testament in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, where he says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell or Tartarus, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And then he goes on to to make the rest of his point. But again, here we have it. It's used once, and it's actually never talks about people going to Tartarus. It only makes the point about angels going to Tartarus as something that they're already there. Then we have the word Gehenna. Uh, this is the word that Jesus tends to use over and over again. Uh, it's from Gehinnom, which means, is the way they said, the Valley of Hinnom. And I put a picture of it so you can see it. Um, we used to think, and if you read a lot of commentaries or things like that or hear sermons, um, people used to think that the Valley of Hinnom was sort of the Jerusalem municipal dump, uh, that it was where they threw out their trash and burned their trash. Um, but scholars don't really think that's true anymore. Uh, the, early ref the earliest reference to that idea is like a thousand years later than Christ. Uh, there's no, and there's no archaeological evidence that they were using that area as a dump. Uh, so that's probably not what was going on, even though it is a very, is that earlier in the Old Testament times, Hinnom was a place where idolatrous sacrifices were made, and specifically where the Canaanites and then later faithless Jewish people burned their children to death before Molech. So Jeremiah 7, 31 uh, God says they've built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. 
So in, in Jewish thought, Hinnom is an accursed place. It's an accursed valley. It's a place of suffering and wickedness. So everyone, when Jesus uses it, everyone knows what he means by that, right? It would be kind of like if we talked about Auschwitz or something like that, just a place that it's like the very worst kinds of things happened there. And if we said like, if, if this happens, you're gonna end up in Auschwitz. It's like, ooh, that, that has a powerful punch. And so Gehenna sort of becomes the Bible term for the idea of Tartarus, where the wicked go. Jesus uses this term as a synonym for God's judgment. I think in Jesus' teaching, it's often the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. But he never teaches on it directly. There's never a time where Jesus teaches, like, this is what Gehenna is. This is what's going to happen But I think that uh, what we do see is that it seems to be an image of fire and destruction more than um, some sort of well-defined afterlife kind of place. Jesus doesn't seem to be using it in an afterlife way. And then the last term I want to talk about is this lake of fire. Uh, This is the term that's used in Revelation 19 to 21, those chapters. And and we'll touch on that. We'll read some of those with this idea of a lake of fire sort of speaks for itself. Um, and again, that, that one seems to get translated like a fire. So in summary, Hades is kind of the Greek parallel to Sheol, um, the place of the mostly sort of vaguely unhappy dead. Um, Hades is ambiguous, but hell is not merely Hades. Tartarus, Gehenna, and the lake of fire are definitely negative places, super negative places. So our key text here. Uh, Revelation 20, I think I put it on your, your screen here. When the thousand years are over, this is our reference where we get the, the thousand year reign or premillennialism, uh, it just comes from this one verse. Um, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they're like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is our our text and we'll come back to it. Um, a couple of things I just want to note here is notice the difference in this passage between books and book. So that the dead are all judged in accordance with what was written in the books, these records of everything that people had done. And then ultimately after that judgment, there's a second judgment of whether your name is written in the book of life. So there's, there's the first books of all these records, and then there's the book of the Lamb's book of life. So this is perhaps our most important text about the last judgment and being sent to hell. 
So the traditional teaching um, that's held by most, but not all Christians throughout history is what we call eternal conscious torment, ECT. This is sort of the theological term, that hell is about a place where you are eternally suffering. It never ends. And when it comes to talking about God's wrath and hell, it seems like most of us either don't ever want to talk about it, and a lot of churches, like we just never talk about it, or it kind of becomes a like litmus test of how orthodox and faithful we are. Like we will teach the toughest message of all. And, and I know for me, uh, I probably uh, have been in churches that did both. I remember uh, a bunch of years ago during our summer school of ministry reading a book uh, called Four Views on Hell. And it was the first time I'd really began studying this. Um, and, uh, it, it was a pretty interesting experience because I went in sort of thinking one thing and came out thinking something else, uh, but not came out of reading the book, but came out of this whole process that God was leading me on. Um, and it, it forced me to rethink a lot of other things. And that's some of the stuff that I want to, to show you tonight. But again, you don't have to agree with me on these things. I want to get you to think, not tell you what to think. But I think the biggest thing I got out of that four views on hell book, and honestly, the biggest thing I've gotten out of all of these kind of debate style books like that um, on tough doctrinal issues where you have multiple authors writing for their own things is about the power and danger of assumptions. In order to study scripture, we have to make assumptions. But often those assumptions aren't uh, they aren't brought into the light. They're not named for what they are. They're not saying like, I'm arguing this based on the assumption that this, I just make the assumption. Often we share assumptions. And so we have to mine those. We have to unearth those. And then we can begin to compare them and say like, do I buy that assumption? So when we come to something like eternal conscious torment, there is an essential assumption that has to be made. Uh, there is no argument for ECT without this assumption. And so I have a quote here uh, for you. Charles Pinnock writes, I refer to the belief in the immortality of the soul, which, when accepted, must necessarily skew the exegesis. Exegesis is about finding what the text itself says. I believe that the real basis of the traditional view of the nature of hell is not the Bible's talk of the wicked perishing, but an unbiblical anthropology, that word means a view of what it means to be human, that's read into the text. If a biblical reader approached the text with the assumption that souls are naturally immortal, would they not be compelled to interpret texts that speak of the wicked being destroyed to mean they're tortured forever? since according to that presupposition, souls cannot go out of existence. So you'll start finding this uh, if you start studying deeper, is that ultimately it really centers back on, do I think human souls in and of themselves go on forever? So keep that in mind, and we're going to come back to it. So let's talk about God's judgment. You know, the scripture says quite a few things about wrath, uh, God's wrath, and about hell. But it pales in comparison to how much it says about this much bigger theme of God's justice and judgment. He has a lot more to say about that than he does about wrath or hell. Hebrews 9.27 says, People are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. 
And in scripture, judgment functions to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, and I think sometimes in our, our um, New Testament kind of understanding of being freed by Christ, we sometimes forget that. Like, so think about our Revelation passage that we just read. Before the test comes of whether you are, uh, your name is written in the book of life, everyone goes through judgment of their righteous or wicked choices. What we've done goes on display before God. So I want you to think about this judgment functioning between the righteous and the wicked and think of some of the judgment stories. Think about Noah and the other people of his day. God sees that everyone has become wicked except for Noah and his family. And so God's judgment brings the righteous people through and destroys the wicked. Um, Lot and the people of Sodom. God sees that this city is wicked and Abram talks him down of like, will you save the city even if, even if 10 people are found to be righteous? But there weren't 10. So God saves only those few righteous people and the rest of them are destroyed. Um, See, not everyone in God's judgment, not everyone gets the same fate because not everyone makes the same choices. And the shocking twist in our biblical story is going to come near the end when the Messiah himself comes under God's judgment at the cross, when a righteous person comes under God's judgment. And a lot of the New Testament understanding hinges on that moment. But I would also just point out that especially in in Genesis and Exodus, uh, where we've been kind of looking at some of these stories, that uh, God's judgment is a reversal of the creative process. process. So, um, you know, when men and their sin become a disease on God's good creation, he brings judgment, the flood. Sodom, the Red Sea, these kinds of things are seen as uh, judgment is uncreation. Evil is a threat to God's purposes, and it has to be removed, and it's always cleansed with either water or fire. So judgment is uncreation. And there's little concern in any of these stories being given to the wicked being made to suffer for their sins. Removal is the key idea here. So in in the flood, there's no time given to how much the people suffered that didn't get on the boat. Though again, some of our retellings of the flood sometimes focus on that a little more. In Sodom, there's no telling of the suffering of the Sodomites. Uh, When Egypt's army is destroyed at the Red Sea, there's no description of their suffering in that. And there's no sense that their removal is not enough that God's judgment wasn't satisfied because those people aren't still being tortured. In the Old Testament, God's wrath equals destruction. And I don't think we should expect God to change in the New Testament. So let's talk about hell and God's goodness. I know I'm moving fast and I'm looking at this from a lot of different angles, but that's what I think we've got to do uh, to get a good handle on this topic. I would say that goodness is the only way we properly talk about God. So if we talk about hell in a way that doesn't fit with God's goodness, alarm bells should start going off in our mind. And we should be worried that maybe we're not in line with scriptural truth anymore. So whatever doctrine we end up believing about hell, it needs to be consistent with what we know already that God is good. So in the Bible, God's goodness is really played out in two kind of major arenas. There's two concerns here. Uh, The first one is God's holiness, 
his purity, his active righteousness and justice, actively concerned with making things the way they ought to be. In that sense, God is good. He's different than us. He's pure in a way that we're not pure. But we also talk about God's goodness in the sense of his love, his kindness, his generosity. He's good because he's willing to forgive, because he's self-sacrificing. He's good because he wants what's best for us. This kind of goodness goes beyond justice to kindness and mercy and things like that. So when we say God is good, we should mean both of those things. Any understanding of what's to come later, eschatology, needs to be consistent with both aspects of his goodness, not just one or the other. You know, in one extreme, we can end up with a a view of God that he's good in this holy way, but he's cold and harsh. But on the other extreme, we can come up with this, you know, sweet old grandpa God who just wants to give us sweet things. Again, I talked earlier how we get sentimental about forgiveness. We like to pretend forgiveness costs nothing. I would even think about it in, in our movies and stuff. You know, we, we don't really have the stomach for the bad guys suffering commensurate with the damage that they've caused. You know, so some villain or monster, you know, devastates New York and kills thousands. And then his end is that he just gets killed. The good guys and the innocent people suffer more than the bad guy. And, and I think it just shows that we don't have a stomach for this kind of uh, justice that God says he's going to bring. So if we end up with a view of hell that's inconsistent with God's goodness, then we either have to adjust our view of God's goodness or adjust our view on hell. And that's really what systematic theology is. is it, it's about trying to think coherently. That's what I mean. We're trying to come up with something systematic that works in a system. Now, sometimes we try and get out of that by saying things like, well, God is mysterious and his thoughts are higher than ours. And, and that is true. That is absolutely true. But God also gave us brains and he gave us a lot of revelation of himself and his purposes. And so I would say we should use that excuse as sort of a last resort. Um, that if, yeah, there are some tensions in scriptures that we don't know how to resolve, we don't know how to wrestle with, but let's only uh, settle there if we don't have anywhere else to go. So this issue of hell and God's goodness is a very real problem. It's been an issue throughout our Christian history. So for example, Thomas Aquinas, who's considered one of the greatest thinkers of the church, taught that the bliss of the blessed in heaven is increased by knowing that the souls of the damned are being tortured in hell. The bliss of the blessed in heaven is increased because they know other people are being tortured. I think we should think hard about something like that. To me, it seems incoherent with God's goodness. So what do we mean by hell? I talked about the the Greek words or the words of the Bible, but, but what's the message in the scripture? In the scripture, I think hell, I, I would lump it into two things. The first is that hell is a destination or an outcome. It's a destination or an outcome. That hell is a rejection of God, and therefore it's a rejection of what's good. When you push God away, what's left is hell. Because God 
is the source of all that's good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So we may think that something else is good, but Proverb 14, 12 reminds us that there's a path that seems right to a man, but in the end, that path leads to death. And we find that, that there are things our culture calls good that God does not call good, but ultimately what's truly good will be gone when God is not in the picture. So hell's a destination. And then the second image that gets used frequently is that hell is a kind of fire. And fire in scripture is usually about testing, judgment, and or purification. These are the ways that fire was typically used uh, in ancient times. And again, we don't need to be thinking about fire in modern terms. Like we're able to create fires, you know, that have many, many thousands of degrees and things like that. They were not able to do that. They were able to light things on fire. And, you know, and, and so you have to, to get that image and not bring too much of our modern science into it. But then and now, we put things in fire to see what they truly are, to separate things out. Fire can even make things better. So we think about the refiner's fire that helps us remove base metals from a pure metal that we want. And sometimes we see that there's nothing worth keeping after a fire. So that's the image that Paul's using in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 12 to 15. He's talking about teachers in the church or, or Christian leaders and the work that they do. But he says, he talk about building on the foundation of Christ he says, we can build using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, but our work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what's been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. So the fire sometimes just cleans things out gets rid of the dross. Fire will tell the truth in this image. Um, a passage that I think is really important for us as we think about eschatology is 2 Peter 3.10. And here we have some challenge with translation. So I'm gonna give you a couple of different versions. The, the New King James Version and the Old King James Version um, you know, talk about uh, that they're here at the end of this verse that the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So here's an image of, of fire. The NIV takes a version that the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So we have to kind of wrestle with this thing of, is this talking about destruction or revelation? And, and it's not just the NIV. The Christian Standard Bible uses the word disclosed. The ESV uses the word exposed. The CEV says that they'll be seen for what they are. So, uh, but, but there's also a number of other versions that use this burning language. But either way, I think what we've got is apocalyptic language that ultimately the earth and everything in it will be passed through fire. And I think we have to, to balance that somehow against all the language of renewal and resurrection that's also being used talking about this same time period. So that's the fire imagery. So why is hell good? I think it's good, number one, if we take this uh, destination thing because it affirms and respects our freedom and the validity of the choices that we make. Hell is morally serious 
and hell takes us seriously. You know, you could get a picture of a daycare worker who, you know, wants a little kid to draw a picture of their family and then just sort of stands over them and is like, no, no, not, not that color. Pick this one. No, draw this. And just is sort of ends up taking their hand and making this picture versus sort of letting them draw the picture. God is not the high control daycare worker, right? Who constantly corrects until he just ends up doing it himself. That's not the picture that he gives us, that he gave us choices. He lets us do what we choose to do. The Christian teaching, and this is regardless of of positions on predestination, is that this world is not just an illusion or a drama that's being played out. That you and I both have a serious responsibility that we have serious moral choices to make. And we have to ask ourselves, if we don't have that, what do we have instead? If our choices don't matter, then what? Is that consistent with God's moral goodness? Is it consistent with God's moral goodness if someone who decides to live a daily life of purposeful wickedness and they end up with the same result as someone who lives a daily life of purposeful goodness and love? So hell takes us seriously. And then secondly, as a fire, hell is good because the truly good is ultimately revealed and the truly evil receives what it deserves. Hell is the just punishment of what is bad, and it restores a universe where currently the wicked can prosper while the righteous suffer. Hell restores that. See, evil is removed because it has no lasting or legitimate place in God's creation. I would say that we should find the existence of evil absurd, as Christians. If we really believe in a good, powerful God, we should be asking like, how can God put up with this? How can he allow this stuff to happen? And we find writers throughout the scripture asking that exact question. We find it in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. And see, hell is a part of the answer because what hell tells us is that evil is only temporary. It will be handled. And I get that we don't like talking about hell much. But if we don't want to talk about it, I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we saying instead? What do we communicate by our silence on the topic? So an alternative that some people have tried to do is to look at hell as purgatory. In other words, that it's somehow redemptive and temporary. Uh, there's no scriptural teaching about this. The uniform message of the scripture is that hell is both awful and permanent. But this is just a version of universalism. Universalism is not really an orthodox option, but let's consider it because that is what theology classes are for, right? Is to think through things and explore things. So in Roman Catholic doctrine, hell is not purgatory. Or maybe I should say purgatory is not hell. Uh, Hell is where you go if you're not saved by the work of Christ. And purgatory is where you go on your way to heaven. 
to be cleansed or purged so that you are fit to live in heaven. And I think Peter will probably address that some next week. Hell is where we go if we are atoning for our own sins, if our name is not written in the book of life. The other option of purgatory or heaven is where we go if Christ is atoning for our sins. Purgatory is not a way we atone for our sins in Roman Catholic doctrine. It's a way that we're, we're purged of our sins so that we can live righteously in the new age. But universalist arguments, the way that some people are using purgatory today, are ultimately deductive arguments. They're not exegetical arguments. So a deductive argument is where we put forth propositions that it's assumed that the arguer and the audience both believed are true. An exegetical argument is where we take something from Scripture itself. So an example of a deductive argument, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. So you have premises and they lead to a conclusion. So how would we use this in this topic? We would say things like, God loves everybody. God is not willing that any should perish. God is all-powerful. Therefore, no one will perish. So this deductive argument is always an argument from God's goodness and God's power and maybe something about the nature of our decision-making. So we say things like, if God has endless time to work on us, and if he's infinitely beautiful and attractive and good, then ultimately, even the most sin-crazed denizen of hell will eventually come to his senses and come to salvation. And deductive arguments are a legitimate way to argue. This is not a crazy thing. We do this all of the time. We have to do this to, to make our way through the world. But we just need to know that this is the way universalism is argued because the scriptures on hell can't be squared with this. The exegetical argument does not line up with that kind of deductive argument. It just doesn't work. So in the Bible, we don't see any argument like that, but we do see hell, a permanent second death type place where you go if you aren't saved. So that brings us back to eternal conscious torment. This phrase that shows up in our church statements of faith in various places. I would say that conscious seems redundant. Um, eternal torment seems plenty. Um, I don't think we're tormented if we're unconscious. So, um, But this is the majority position throughout Christian history. Most, the vast majority of Christians throughout history have taken for granted that this is what hell is. Eternal conscious torment. Unending suffering for the wicked. The problem is that you end up with a cosmos that always includes evil and suffering. Let's look at these poll results before we go dive into this a little bit. Um, I just want to kind of see where we were on our poll. Okay, so yeah, so we had, um, yeah, this, this was not surprising. So number one, eternal conscious uh, suffering, 50%. Um, number two, uh, kind of our, our purgatory view uh, got a, a small percent. Number three, place where people ultimately cease to exist. And then we have some, I don't know. So yeah, so interesting, interesting results. It's helpful to kind of know what we're talking about, and that's not... Not surprising at all. 
So let's talk um, about this other paradigm. Well, actually, let's take just a second. I would like for you, if you've got someone with you, um, or you can even just reflect on it, I want you to say, what do you kind of think? What are your thoughts and feelings about this eternal conscious torment idea? Maybe share with someone next to you or journal just briefly about that. What's the question? What do you think and feel about eternal conscious torment? Okay, so I want to move on from ECT, and I want to talk about another paradigm. Uh, well, we're really moving on from ECT and various versions of universalism. Another paradigm. Uh, th this is a small minority view, um, though a number of key theologians from many denominations do subscribe to this, but it is a minority, and I think it's helpful to remember um, when you're dealing with minority and majority, that we should take seriously what the majority, past and present, think, but that doesn't mean that we have to accept it unthinkingly. Some examples. The majority of Christians, past and present, have accepted the Pope as the supreme authority in the church. But many of us who consider ourselves Protestants don't, even though we're in the minority. Or, for those of you who do accept the Pope, as the supreme authority, would that change for you if you found out that Protestants outnumbered Catholic Christians one day? The majority of American Christians in the early 18th century were not anti-slavery, but we would hold that the minority in that case was a prophetic voice to the majority. So minority and majority are helpful, but not definitive. And I think we also have to be careful about judging ideas or doctrines by association. Just because someone that we don't like or disapprove of holds that view or believes that, then it's wrong, rather than judging ideas and doctrine by scripture and open debate. So here's the key question as we move into our new paradigm, is what does eternal or everlasting mean in scripture? This is a phrase that gets used in the Old and the New Testament. So again, some more biblical words here. In the Hebrew, the word that gets translated as everlasting or eternal is this word olam. So I gave you some examples. In Exodus 12, he's giving Passover instructions. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance um, or an eternal or everlasting. It depends on your version for you and your descendants. When you uh, enter the land that the Lord will give you as promised, observe this ceremony. So that's Passover. Passover as an eternal or lasting ordinance. 
Uh, different versions also say things like perpetual or permanent. But it's not perpetual for Christians because Jesus has come as our Passover lamb. And so we don't still do those things. Um, Exodus 29, uh, I gave you, these are lots of instructions for uh, how Aaron and the priests should dress and things that they do. Uh, It says that the priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. So Aaron's priesthood is a lasting ordinance, but the entire book of Hebrews argues that it isn't now. It was perpetual until it wasn't. Uh, in 1 Kings, I uh, gave you some things. The priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, da, da, da. Then Solomon says, you know, ultimately I built this temple so that it's a place that you can dwell forever. Each of those, those highlighted words is I'm telling you where Olam was used. You can dwell forever. Um, so the temple was built as a place for God to dwell forever, eternally, everlastingly, but it's been demolished. So don't literalistically press forever into some kind of philosophical ideal in the Old Testament. It might mean that. And again, for sake of time, I'm giving you examples where it doesn't mean that, but it doesn't have to mean that. It does mean that in other places. And we use these words in the same way uh, to mean both things. Um, In the Greek, the word is aeonion, and it can mean forever or eternal, but it can also mean something like of the age to come. And it can be used for an action that is temporary that has an eternal result. And I want to give you some examples of this where where this word means it's a, a temporary action that has a permanent result. So Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that leads to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So eternal judgment, here's our key word. Um, The point is not that God goes on judging and judging and judging and judging forever, like that he's always judging. The point is that he judges, and then the judgment that he makes lasts. So in Revelation, judgment happens at a specific point in time. Its implications are permanent. Uh, Hebrews 9.12, he didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, talking about Jesus entering the most holy place, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Aeonion there. Jesus isn't redeeming us eternally. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is that unlike the old way, Jesus only had to do it once and then it was done. The implications of it are eternal. He doesn't have to go every single year and do it again and again and again like they did in the Old Testament priesthood. Um, Different author, Mark 3.29, Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. So eternal sin, again, the point is not that they are blaspheming forever. Whenever you blasphemed, however long that took, the implications are eternal. And and in the context, again, uh, this is not just about saying like, I don't believe in the Holy Spirit or something like that. It's, he's saying when you mistake the work of God 
as if it's the work of the devil. Like if you're that skewed <laughs> that you think God's work is Satan's work and you think Satan's work is God's work, um, then there's no way to save you. You've turned completely away from God as I, I think what that passage is getting at, lest I disturb you. So applying the principle I think that there are some Old Testament forever images that are picked up in the New Testament at different places, and sometimes we don't understand them because we don't know their Old Testament references. We don't get. So let's look at Mark 9. Jesus again, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, so this worm never died, the fire not quenched. These are images of hell or of Gehenna that Jesus uses over and over again. But let's look at the reference. So he's referring to Isaiah 66. It says, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die and the fire that burns them will not be quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So I don't have... Time to go back and read all of Isaiah 66. But this is an image of worms eating dead bodies and of dead bodies being burned. It's probably, Isaiah is probably reminding them of the Egyptians washing up on the seashore dead after God's great redemptive act at the Red Sea. So it's not a picture in Isaiah of tormenting living beings. It's another way of expressing the permanence of God's judgment, that these people are dead and now the natural processes and the human brought processes are going to have their, their way with these dead bodies. Um, in Revelation, we get some images of unquenchable fire in this phrase of smoke going up forever and ever. So uh, Revelation 19, let's look at this. Uh, he's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In Revelation 14, third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. So these are both alluding to Isaiah 34. So let's go see what they refer to. So in Isaiah 34, starting in verse eight, it says, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and the screech owl will possess it. The great, wild, great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of destruction. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places of rest. The owl will nest there and lay eggs. 
She will hatch them and care for her young under the shadow of her wings. There are also the falcons will gather, each with its mate. So this image of the smoke going up forever and ever, of the fire not being quenched, is an image of the permanence of the judgment that God is going to bring on them, that God will be unrelenting in his judgment. But if we press that fire imagery too far and try to take it literally, how are all of these animals moving into the area? You know, these are not like fire owls. This is not Harry Potter, you know, where we have lots of creatures that live in the fire and thorns that grow in the fire. You know, this is about uh, an ending to the human habitation of this place. And that's the image that Revelation is drawing on here. Again, uh, an image of permanent judgment. If we revisit Revelation 20, where we went earlier... And I want to revisit it with the idea of judgment as punishment and termination as opposed to torture. So in verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so I want to stop here for a second because here we have this language this of tormenting day and night forever and ever. And I think, you know, this is our our best verse, but I would say these are not humans that are being talked about here, number one. So even if we want to press that language, these are not people. Uh, These are all spiritual forces uh, much bigger than people in the book of Revelation. And he says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then Hades and death were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, here's our lake of fire imagery. Now note that death and Hades are thrown in first. So our question that we have to ask if we're using this as image of torture is do we think that death and Hades are going to be tortured? Of course not. They're abstractions. These are not, these are not beings in some way. The implication seems to be that death and Hades will be destroyed. And then in the next phrase, the people whose names aren't in the book of life are thrown in too. This passage is full of images and metaphors that are symbolic. But I think it's the only passage that makes any sense to argue for eternal conscious torment. But to do that, you have to mix two different parts of the passage. You have to take this first part about being tormented day and night forever and ever, and then mix it with the part about the humans Uh, the dead who are thrown into the lake of fire. Because it doesn't say that about the dead. So, uh, you know, this could be just extravagant symbolism throughout here. This could represent and be symbolic of the forces that stand against Christ. And remember that people have read Revelation in many different ways. We have to be careful about taking things too literally or literalistically in Scripture anywhere, but, but even more so in Revelation and some of this apocalyptic language. 
Do we think trees are literally going to grow hands and clap them? Will hills really get legs and skip like rams? You know, or is the scripture saying something else? But even if we take this literally, this passage does not show lost human beings being tormented. It says this about the other people at the beginning. I think you've gotten ahead of me on my notes again. Um, it's not up. Um, but yeah, the, uh, uh, but, but when the parallel passage, so these, these first three things are thrown into the lake of fire and it says they're tormented. When the parallel passage comes a few verses later, the tormenting language is gone. And if you notice in the Old and the New Testament, uh, Hebrew literature tends to repeat itself a lot. Uh, some of you have probably noticed that in reading. So the consistent language of Scripture is a language of destruction. It's about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. The smoke may go up forever and ever as a sign of destruction, but the people aren't there anymore. The whole point of Sodom is that they were completely eradicated, not that they're still suffering. The New Testament presumes the old. It's layered on top of the old. And the challenge we have is that as people who often don't know the Old Testament very well, we don't get the illusions. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you hear the language? Destroy both soul and body. This is language of death, of extinction, of extermination. Exegetically, it's death language. Only an eisegesis, so exegesis is what comes out of the text. Eisegesis is where we bring something to the text. It's only an eisegesis that we can make a text like this be about torture. We bring something to the text that isn't there. And as I said before, what we bring to the text is that our soul is immortal. So let's look at just punishment, this idea that we, we suffer appropriately for our sins versus eternal conscious torment. Again, I would argue strongly that the soul... A human soul is not immortal. Garrett kind of spent some time unpacking that for us in Genesis last week. Only God lives forever on his own. And every creature, every creature meaning created thing, created being, depends on God to sustain them. So I think about Hebrews 1, 3, where he says that he sustains all things by his powerful word. And this is what, I think you go to the next one. Every creature depends on God to sustain them. Um, this is what all Orthodox Christians think. What I'm arguing here is not unusual. Um, no one is teaching that human souls are innately immortal. That's a Greek philosophical idea. Um, Greeks and Hindus believe that in an immortal soul apart from God, uh, truly immortal souls are independent of God. They don't need him to go on existing. But what some Christian theologians have argued is that God decided to grant humans an immortal soul. But there aren't any Bible verses that say that. And this is a powerful assumption that came out of Hellenistic or Greek philosophical thinking and that, that whole worldview. 
It's what philosophers like Plato believed that the early Christians began sort of bringing to their readings of Scripture. I would say that passages like the tree of life in Genesis, and it shows up again in Revelation, the point is not that humans were going to live forever without the tree of life. The point is that they needed the tree of life to live forever, and that God took that away from them, and thus they were going to die. And that's why I think in Revelation 22, when we get this picture of God's redeemed world, the tree of life is back. We can eat from it again. We can have God sustaining our life forever. In John, Uh, Jesus uses the phrase eternal life to talk about salvation over and over again, that this is what salvation is, is being granted eternal life. And so we have to ask, if we think we have immortal souls, is eternal life actually a gift from God? Or is it just sort of a change of address in the afterlife? Let's look at Genesis 1 and 2. Briefly, Garrett looked at this because, because a lot of this goes back to how, what, what do we argue about the image of God? What does it mean that we were created in the image of God? Garrett said this last week, people have used the image of God thing to say all sorts of things. Anything we want to say about humans, we can bring there. But I would say in Genesis 1, we only get immortality from the image of God language if we bring it there because it really makes no sense with the tree of life story. So again, eisegesis, you can get immortality of the soul. Exegesis, you don't. From the text, it would seem that the image of God uh, is creator language, because the only thing we know about God so far when this happens is that he creates good things. And then he says, we were made like him. So we're creators and carers for the earth uh, in that. But there's another place that Garrett didn't talk about that we also get taught this immortality of the soul. And it's where God breathed into the man in Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So here it is. The man became a living being. This is the the word nephesh. Uh, And again, you can argue that unless you look at the rest of the the uses of nephesh in this same context, because the exact same Hebrew word is used for both Adam and for all of the animals. And I gave you a few examples there. So let the the water team with living creatures, that's the word nephesh. Um, You know, every living thing, nephesh. Uh, Let the land produce living creatures, nephesh. Everything that has the breath of life, nephesh. So this same language he just uses later for humans. But sometimes our translations will translate man in 2.7 as a living soul and the animals as living creatures. And you should always be suspect of translations that translate the same word in two different ways in the exact same context. Usually we're bringing some prior understanding to that there. So I don't think there's any argument here for humans being different from the animals because of this God-breathed language. Biblically, God does not give the man a soul at this point. He makes the man become a soul at this point, become a living creature. So the story of Genesis is that humans were not created immortal, but had and lost the chance at unending life. And so we need the rest of the biblical story, that immortality is something that has to be entered into as a human. 
It has to be given to us and sustained from somewhere outside of us. Biblically, immortality is something to look forward to. It's something that comes at the end of the story, not at our beginning. And you could also reference uh, 1 Corinthians 15.42 or Psalm 21.4. I don't have time to go to those. Uh, This quote, I think, is helpful. He says, "There, there have been a couple of forces eroding the doctrine of the immortal soul. The most obvious has been the inroads made by biblical studies. The basic insight at work here is that in Hebrew thought and language, we do not possess a soul, we are a soul. The word traditionally translated soul, the Hebrew word nephesh, which literally means throat, refers simply to a living person or animal. It's the whole person, the life that's in view, not just a part. The living being is thought of as a unity, not a composite of parts of body, soul, and spirit. And that's from the grit and the oyster, which I gave you the the reference at the end of your packet. So in the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe in the resurrection of the full human being, not just of a soul that somehow goes on later without the body. So instead of just punishment, which is the phrase that I'm using to talk about this view of hell, some people like to use terms like annihilationism or conditional immortality. But I don't think these are very precise either because they both imply immortality. You're immortal, so God has to annihilate. He has to destroy something. You know, you're, you're immortal, but God puts conditions on that. And you can look all of these views up online and, and explore them. And I don't think any of those are consistent with the biblical view of what it means to be human. So, does the Bible teach just punishment or eternal torment? That's our question. Does it teach proportional punishment or infinite punishment? Another way we might ask this is, will everyone be punished equally? And I don't think that the scripture or our ability to reason theologically supports the idea that all unredeemed people will be punished equally. In Revelation 20, the books opened are account books. You'll be judged according to your choices, it tells us. I think about a passage in Luke 12. uh, Jesus says, The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So again, here we see this principle that some receive many blows and some receive few blows. Their punishment is proportional to their choices and even their ignorance in this case. The fire imagery of hell functions as God's wrath against evil. It's God's settled enmity towards evil, that God will never be happy until things are as they should be, that he keeps working to make things the way that they should be. The Bible tells us that God is always upset about evil. He's always upset. Fire causes suffering, yes, but, but it's a force of purifying the cosmos, 
The point is not the suffering. The point is the purifying. And so I think that this message of proportional punishment or of just punishment, it, it's not great news, right? It's, it's very bad to think that people who choose to atone for their own sin will have to suffer for that. But I would say it's very bad, but it's no worse than it has to be, which is what I would say this eternal conscious torment thing is. I think it's worse than it has to be biblically. I think with just punishment, we avoid what I would consider a moral absurdity of every unredeemed person suffering the same as all the others. Because guys, it, it creates all sorts of problems if Hitler and his cronies suffer the same as their victims. How can they suffer the same as one of their victims who refuses Christ if God is just? We also skip the absurdity of God and the saints trying to enjoy the world to come while all these other people are being tortured the whole time. Getting our just desserts is sad. But then we get over the sadness, like we get over other things. And that's not even to mention the even greater absurdity of these old Christian teachings that watching the suffering makes heaven better for people. That they could see the suffering and that made it heaven even more pleasant. That's a very vindictive way of, of looking at heaven. So guys, the message of Scripture is clear on one thing. Either Jesus pays for your sins or you do. But I think if you do, you pay for them and then you're done because you don't have any life in yourself. You don't have any life apart from God. I imagine the image of an astronaut who's, you know, connected to uh, the International Space Station by tethers. And if he just chose to clip the tether and float off, he would have nothing to sustain life in himself anymore. He's cut himself off from the source of everything that he needs to live. And that's what we ultimately do when we choose to be apart from God. And Peter's going to talk next week some about some of our bigger questions around things like, what do we do about people who've never heard about God or who've never heard about Christ? So I'm not going to dig into those today. There's nothing easy even about this view of hell. It's really bad. And the Bible uses extreme language to talk about hell. It uses language of darkness and fire. Just punishment is bad. It's just not worse than it has to be. And I would just say that if the Bible teaches it, I want to believe it, right? Whatever the scripture teaches, that's what I want to believe. But I don't want to believe theological error. Charles Pinnock wrote, hell is a terrifying possibility. It's the possibility of using our freedom to lose God and destroy ourselves. So I believe the most literal reading, personally, of Scripture supports this viewpoint. In the most literal reading of the language of destruction, 
things are destroyed. I don't think it's a literal reading of destruction to say that destroyed things are tortured forever. The most literal reading of the image of fire burns things up because that's what fire does. Rather than the image of fire meaning something that causes pain continually without actually consuming or burning anything. And the only literal way to square darkness with fire, those two powerful images of hell, is if the fire goes out at some point and all you're left with is darkness. So I'm not arguing to move away from a literal reading of Scripture. I'm arguing to move toward a literal reading of Scripture and to take the language that God has given us seriously. God does not want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And in the end, he will have done all that he can do to draw the entire cosmos into shalom, into relationship with him forever. He's making all things new. And the only people who will perish are those who are determined to go a different way, the ones insisting on it. God is not vindictive. In the end, he will be shown to be just and he'll be shown to be the justifier of those who call on him. And that's consistent, again, with any view of predestination. So I want to use this uh, quote, again, from this, uh, the, this source called The Grit and the Oyster that I, I gave you the reference to, of two possible endings of Scripture. I think he paints a powerful picture. Option one, in the new creation, the world is made anew, but there's a zone where the effects of sin continue. Not everything's redeemed. There's a part of the creation where misery and death continue forever and ever. And for this zone, there is no remedy, ever. Heaven is a paradise, a palace of endless bliss, except that if you go downstairs, you'll find the dungeons and there's a torture chamber. And that would be an exaggeration or a you know, depiction of this traditional view. Option two is that part of God renewing the creation is to condemn, destroy, and remove all that stands against God and his purposes of blessing. Sin and the devil and all those who side with him will be removed from the creation, i.e. removed from createdness, i.e. removed from existence. Like when a surgeon removes a cancer, God will cut these diseased parts out. In the end, they will no longer be found anywhere. And that's this more annihilationist or just punishment view. So the question that we end with is, what do you think? Which of these answers best fits with the story that biblical theology tells us? And again, I'm not asking you to, to change or even decide your view tonight, but to begin engaging with these scriptures. I want you to think about our biblical theology and the story that it tells. I have a picture here. It's very dramatic. But again, this is the traditional view. And I think we have to wrestle with the question, is that really how the Bible story ends? Is this really God's final purpose for creation? I wouldn't have thought so. Doesn't the story of redemption 
project forward into a new world from which every trace of opposition to God has been judged and eradicated. There's no pit of furious, teeth-gnashing skeleton souls. There's nothing but the glory of God covering the whole earth for eternity. That's how it reads to me, anyhow. So, we're going to take about a five-minute break, and then we will launch into Q&A. Thanks for being with us.